One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Chakra Way Meditation Podcast. Today I am joined by Clint Callahan. And Clint is a social worker, a therapist, a life coach, and um, he's just told me he's a man about town as well. So, <laughs> um, welcome, Clint. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yay. No, well, it's really interesting because, um, you know, as we were saying just before, when we were chatting, you mm-hmm. live, you you deal with very real world situations, you know, in the yes. in the work that you do. Um, you know, sometimes we delve off over, you know, into the esoteric and that is wonderful and lovely, but we do like substance. We like a, a hook to hang our things on, our, our healing modalities, our ways of coping, all of that kind of thing. And um, so one of the, you know, there's, there's a couple of things that I was really interested to talk to you about. And one of them okay. is EMDR. And the other one is this other um, thing that you have, which is this small changes, big impact and changing like incrementally. And mm-hmm. also I want to talk to you about, you mentioned that you're quite good at working out how to stop being a people pleaser. Now, this is something I think a lot of people are going to prick their ears up at this. But before we get into all of that, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got to be where you are. And yeah. yeah. Well, my story, I have to start my story at the beginning of my story, because my birth was the first kind of traumatic event that happened. But I was a baby, so I didn't know. When I was born, I weighed one pound, 15 ounces. So that is so basically when I the smallest weight I got down to was about one pound, nine ounces. This was, I was born about three, a little over three months early. So this was 47 years ago. So by all math and logic, I shouldn't be here. I should be dead because, you know, the story that my mom and dad always told me was, yeah, your mom was supposed to go to her family farm the next day, but you decided to come early. And so if she would have left, you wouldn't have been here. And then it was three months of struggle to survive. And back then they didn't know that, 
with small babies, with premature babies, you could still hold them and care for them and do those things because they were so afraid of infection and of all these different things. Mm. And so I spent the first three months of my life basically clinically touched. So, and that had a profound impact on me for my entire life up until about when I was 44. So about three years ago, because that's when I was actually trained in EMDR and I chose to be a guinea pig and be the person to go through the EMDR in front of the class. Oh, wow. And it changed my life. And so I'll, I'll get into that story. And so what EMDR is for people that don't know is it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So what it is, is it basically is, it's basically helping the right and left hemisphere of your brain use the connections in between to make a full connection across the synaptic gap in your brain. So you're using your entire brain to process through whatever the traumatic event is, be it emotions, be it physical, be it those kind of different things, it allows you to now use your whole brain to reprocess through whatever the event is because trauma is individual specific. What's traumatic to you may not be traumatic to me based on life circumstances. So trauma is, when it comes to big T, little T trauma, it really varies on the person because what I may consider a big T trauma, you may be like, are you kidding me? How is that a big T trauma? I don't understand how that's a capital T. But to me, it is. To you, it may not be. So what EMDR does is it basically helps you harness what REM sleep does in your brain while you're awake. Because REM sleep, if you've ever seen anybody in REM sleep, their eyeballs are bouncing around inside their skull like a ping pong, like a ping pong game, like a really furious ping pong game is going on. And what that does is it's pinging, it's cross pinging the different sections of your brain to create the link across But what happens during trauma is the piece of your brain that's the highway between the two parts of your brain locks down and says, no, this is just an emotional problem. This is not a logic problem. And so then the problem is after the trauma occurs, you have about 48 to 72 hours before it kind of crystallizes in the brain. That's why now they found that with some beta blocker um, heart medication drugs, it can actually stop the really deep entrenching of the traumatic event. So it's amazing the stuff they're coming up with, but that's that's a different story. So, uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I just have lots of information because I've been doing this for 23 years. Um, so what happens then is after you go through the traumatic event and that part locks down, do you sleep well? The answer usually is no. And because you don't sleep well, your brain can't do the full connection across the divide to process that feeling, to recognize that this event is something we we survived. It's okay. You are not in danger anymore. Instead, it gets stuck over here in emotions where it is always and forever now an emotional problem because it basically locks it off in this little tiny vault or this little tiny apartment in that part of your brain. And that's what you hear again and again when when you're going back to that traumatic event. So what EMDR does is it lets you reopen the connection in a safe way to retell the story to the logical part of your brain. So the logical part of your brain can say, this doesn't need to be an ultra 8K HD fully immersive experience. You survived this. Let's drain the color out of this. Let's drain the feeling out of this. And if we're really good, we can get this down to looking like a grainy Polaroid picture. Mm -hmm. instead of the full immersive event that it is. 
And that's what EMDR can do for trauma. And so what it did for me was it, so because I was a baby and this was all a biological body keeps the score physical thing, basically what happened was a couple months before I was supposed to go to this training, my youngest son came up behind me and grabbed me from behind and gave me a hug and told me he loved me. And it sent me into fight or flight mode and panic. And I lost, and I was like, get off me, don't touch me. Oh my God, you know, I freaked out. And so I used that event to get into that feeling state in my body. And then using EMDR and the very specific process you go through, I went through and I broke down the reasoning of what my brain and body were telling me at that time. And it allowed me to basically recognize, oh, my son was only doing that because he was telling me he loves me. He wasn't trying to hurt me. It doesn't mean that when people want to touch me, that they want to hurt me because that's the first sensations I had when I was a baby because it was surgery. It was, you know, foot pricks constantly. It was all these different things. Then I found a uh, journal that my mom wrote and she said, the hardest thing that I noticed is that every time I try to put my hand in there to touch him in the incubator, he shies away like I'm trying to hurt him. And so when I saw that, it was like, oh, damn. Yeah. Okay, I get it now. And so I went and took that back to the next class and we processed through that. And so we processed all the way through it. And at the end, unbidden, my brain came up with, oh, well, the doctors weren't hurting you on purpose. They were just trying to keep you alive. And it was like, whoa, what a revelation. Mm. And so it's been three years now. And I don't have the feeling of fire ants under my skin when my son wants to come and hug me out of nowhere. I don't have that issue with other people wanting to initiate touch. So yeah. it's amazing what it can do. And that's, and that's all science. It's yeah. all science back. So I love EMDR because EMDR is, to me, the way I describe it to people is it's a little bit voodoo. It's a little bit of meditation. It's a little bit of visualization and it's biofeedback. It's all of these things combined to help you reframe and reorient whatever the story is inside of you. And then it helps your full brain connect and say, I don't need to view this as a bad thing because I survived it. I can let it go. Yeah. You're basically switching off the trigger. Yes. That's incredible. I mean, I have always believed the very small amount I know about EMDR is that mm -hmm. it's it the way that it actually makes mm -hmm. those connections is you have to use eye movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so well, actually there's three ways now you oh, okay. can do eye movement which is the light bar or the finger or you can do for some people it's audio where you do the um, binaural beats where where the tone goes from crossover and crossover and that creates the connection or you have uh buzzers where basically it feels like a cell phone is vibrating in each hand in a different in a in a back and forth pattern and each one of those as long as there is some kind of thing that happens across the midline of your body it's creating the cross connection in your brain that's creating the link. So they found that it's multiple ways. So even so, that means even if someone is blind, they can still get the benefits of EMDR. Even if someone is having, even if someone is like, you know, you know, they can use hearing to do it, or they can use the vibrations to do it. Even if someone is hearing impaired, they can use the vibrations. Even, you know, all these different, and what I've found for me, I've been doing this now for a little over three years, and it's, for most people, they like the vibrations because it is, it's it's an active physiological trigger that reminds them, oh wow, this is amazing. I mm -hmm. I I can remind myself like some people I just have them like tap like on their legs in a one two pattern and they can do that at home, 
and it can help bring them back into that. And the way I work with the end, people in the MDR is I teach people, first we do what's called ego building exercises. So first thing we do is we teach people palm space, which is basically a meditation practice, right? Imagine yourself walking down a path, like in a forest, you're hearing the birds chirping, you're smelling the pine trees, you're walking towards this completely glassy lake, you're sitting on this rock that's been warmed by the sun and you just sit there and it's peaceful and it's calm and it's these things. And that's the first place you teach people because that's what happens when you get into the really intense stuff. They need to know they have this completely safe area that nothing else can touch. So we teach these different things ahead of time so that they're not being re-traumatized while you're helping them process their trauma because that's the mistake most people make is oh tell me your traumatic story no 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 i don't want to know what your traumatic story is i want to help you process it without having to relive it that's what i do yeah yeah no there's a there's a lot to be said for that um you know there's a lot of people who i talk to who deal with trauma it's like mm-hmm. you don't actually need to relive or feel the trauma that you've experienced mm-hmm. you just need to kind of see it as an observer you need to kind of know what it was but you don't need to feel it again you just clinical terms that's called therapeutic disassociation because that's what you want people to have is because we all disassociate at times but creating it therapeutically is a lot like the way you get when you get into that really deep meditative state i studied buddhism for many years when i was in graduate school and college and it's one of the things that helped me beat and change so many things and i weave it into all the stuff that I do. And it's kind of funny because I have one client who just recently started Buddhist meditation and she's like, I've been with you for two years and I've heard this stuff from you all the time. And now that I'm working with an actual Buddhist teacher, you sneaky person, you, you've been putting this into my life, whether I knew it or not. And I'm like, yeah, because being mindful, being present is the one way that you can begin to get the third party perspective and recognize the very key thing that I've learned in my life, which is none of us know what's going on. We're all making it up. From the moment we open our eyes to the moment we close our eyes at night, it's a crapshoot. We're making it up. We're we're basing it on what other people say, how they feel, how they react to us. And when you recognize that, it frees you to then make mistakes, try new things, do new things, because if everybody's making it up, then there really is no grand master plan that you're supposed to follow. No, it's very liberating to to embrace the idea that everybody's winging it. You yeah. know, you walk into a room and they all look super confident. And this, this uh-huh. is similar to that trick of like, if you're speaking to a load of people, just imagine them naked. But in fact, you know, yeah. everybody is naked. Yeah. Inside. <laughs> well, we, we, we all are naked under our clothes well exactly so but, but that knowing that even however confident somebody looks they've still mm-hmm. got that you know they've still got their oh, stuff yeah. they've still got their issues everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time yeah yeah exactly That's how it works exactly so yeah no i think it's um it's really interesting and so you use this is this just a, i mean obviously this is a fairly new mm-hmm. modality for you the yeah. EM. Yeah, but mm-hmm. you kind of added it on top of all the other therapy, yes. therapy work that you do, mm-hmm. which I think is really um, interesting. And and what I love about your approach is that you, from what I've gathered in doing my research about you, yes. is that you have you have a, a a massive. I feel like you've got this big wall of shelves, and on it, yeah. you've got a ton of little tools, lots of little yeah. 
advertising gadgets to give out to yeah. your clients. Small yeah. tools for big change and lots That's of right. incremental changes. Because one of thing the things that I've found, right? Yeah, small changes, big impact, one percent yeah. a day. And I love yeah. this. You know, this is what I try to give my yeah. clients and my listeners is yeah. like, okay, so let's try this. This might work for you. Okay, that didn't quite work. All right, let's try something else. Because it's not a one size fits all. We all have to find something mm -hmm. that resonates for us. And when we find it, we are flying, we're away. But um exactly. tell, me, tell me a bit about the sort of the about the various tools that you have that you use. Sure. The one the one thing that I teach people is that it so everyone's been and seen the big rah-rah change events, right? Where it's a two-day, three-day intensive thing where you're with all these people that all are ready to change. And it just you walk out, you feel like your head's gonna explode with all the new amazing ideas and things you learn, and then you get back into real life. And everybody else is the same. And everybody else doesn't have the same energy and then you find yourself slowly drifting back into two or three weeks later oh okay i'm everything's normal again mm. well now what do i do i mm. thought that was supposed to change my life why couldn't i keep the momentum going and it comes down to that you know studies have shown and you know the british psychology journey journals in american psychology journals that Small incremental changes every day are the things that make the biggest impact. It is literally the tortoise and the hare. We all have to be the tortoise. We have to learn that lesson. That, And it doesn't take 500 hours a day to make a change. So my the way I do things, what I've been doing now for about the past decade, um, since I went through a really bad episode of burnout. So in about 2005, my mom, my mom committed suicide. And... So that really was hard for me being a therapist that I should know better and all the kind of stuff. And there's a big backstory behind that, but I'm not going to get too deep into that. And so that led me to grief, depression, anxiety, and all these different things. And so then I switched careers, went into real estate, and then 2008, 2009 happened. And so then I lost everything. So then my wife, my newborn son, and I had to move in with her parents for about a, for a year and a half. And so I was now working for an insurance company in America as a therapist. And if you think it's hard working as a therapist outside of an insurance company, working as a therapist inside of an insurance company is a hundred times harder because they watch you 16 million times closer to make sure you're doing it the way they want. And they don't let you do the eclectic stuff where you, which is what really gives you the change. Yeah. So that was, I was burned out on multiple different dimensions because of that. And so I had to get back into figuring out who did I want to be as a man? Who did I want to be as a father? Who did I want to be as a husband? Who did I want to be? Who, who was I? And so I had to go back to that fundamental thing of how do we create goals for ourselves? So the first thing I did is I was like, well, how do people create goals? And so most people are like, here's the mountaintop, figure out what you need to do to get to the mountaintop. And then when you get there, you'll be who you want to be. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense because I've been to the mountaintop. And when I got there, I was like, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Yeah, I, I've done that. I've, yeah. You know, you do that stuff. So you learn then that, no, it needs to be be, do, then have. Because if you figure out who you want to be, and then you do the steps to become that person, that ultimately leads you to the actual thing that you want to have. And so that's the way I had to reframe my goals. And so the way I do now, I have 
two goals a day that I focus on every day. And one's personal, one's professional. And so I spend three minutes in the morning meditating and then two minutes journaling whatever my brain is coming up with at that time. And then I do that at lunchtime and I do that at dinner time every day without fail. That's what I do. And also I build in failure points. I give myself three cheat days a month and I can say, I don't want to do that. And I find out the longer I have those cheat days, the less I want to do it because five minutes each time is not a big deal. I mean, it's not huge. We've all got five minutes, three times a day. I mean, let's just just be easy on ourselves. Five, five minutes twice a day, you know? Yeah. 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 And so that, that's part of that 1% per day because out of the day, there's 1,440 minutes in a day. So 14 point, so 14 minutes and 40 seconds is 1%. Mm. So 15 minutes a day, you can use that 15 minutes a day to get you to go, oh, this is what my brain is telling me. Because my two goals that I focus on is be present with everybody I meet. And when it comes to my professional life, when I see people have that flicker of that light bulb moment, to keep steering them towards that light bulb moment, to go really in depth in that light bulb moment, to get it so that light bulb gets so bright that it explodes. So they have no, so they have no choice but to begin to change. Because that's the thing is if you can just get them to the point where they're ready to change, then giving them small tasks every day to do, to follow this new pattern, then they start to see this change within about two to three weeks and within a hundred days, everything has changes. And that I know that because that's what I did. When I was at my most burned out, that's when I started this practice mm. of meditating and then journaling and then meditating again and journaling three times a day because burnout is not what people think it is. That's the thing that is the saddest thing. I think everybody is burned out in some level because what burnout actually is, is it's a four-pronged disconnection that you're having in your life. You're disconnected. First, you start to disconnect from your from your workmates, from your friends, from those kind of things, because you're like, I don't have time for this. I have too much other stuff going on. So you start to disconnect from them first. So you don't go to the meetings as much. You don't do the happy hours with your mates after after work as much. You don't then you don't start spending time with your friends outside of work as much. And that's the first phase. And then the second phase is then your hygiene starts to slip. You skip a shower. You go to every other day, every three days. You maybe not shave as much, maybe not use deodorant as often. You know, really like little things that you do. That's the second phase. And then third phase is you go down into where now you're starting to disconnect from your family. You're starting to disconnect from your kids. You're starting to disconnect from your spouse, from your partner, from all these different things. You're now starting to disconnect in that way. And then the third, the fourth one that we always wait to last is work. That's when work now starts to suffer because now there's problems at home. You have no other outlets. You have no other things. You're actually starting to look unkempt. You're starting to look like you haven't like changed your clothes in three days and all these different things to where then that starts to get to the point where they're ready to fire you because now you're making grievous errors at work because you're so profoundly burned out. So then when you get the whiff that they're going to fire you, what do you do? Well, what happened? I just have to change this job. If I quit this job and I get a different job, all my problems will be solved. Yeah, like that's not stressful at all, trying to look for another job. <laughs> right, exactly. And so you do that and then it just follows you around and it just keeps going down and down and down. Yeah, change of the job, yeah, it enlivens you for a little bit, gives you about three, four, three, four to six months, maybe reprieve. 
but then everything else still comes back yeah because you get stuck in that same pattern again because it's full disconnect from all the areas of your life and that's why the meditation aspect of it of getting into of doing this emotional management plan which is one of the things that I, that we talked about is the emotional management plan can take you five minutes three times a day and really it is it's the same thing that i do it's just a different way of looking at it so the first thing you do is you box breathe which oh, yeah. is very specific breathing right yeah it's breathe a in big... for four and you hold for four you breathe out for four and then you hold empty for four and you do that four times and scientifically what that does is it tells your your parasympathetic nervous system i am not being physically attacked right now yeah i'm safe because that's what our body tells us because that's the biological reason of fear is that piece is 80 percent of what we what comes from the world is from the neck down it's our body telling us yeah, everything out here wants us dead because that's 185,000 years of human evolution yeah. that everything in the world physically wants us dead yeah. so that's where the it breath, starts breath and the connection the connection of the breath to the nervous system is yeah. so straightforward yeah. it's just like an absolute oh, yeah. highway yeah. from that's the why they say breath is life right yeah, exactly breath is life and mm. it's the thing that it's the only automatic system in our body that we get to control if yeah. we choose to yeah and that's why it's so important that's why it connects directly to the vagal nerve and the the you know the the soothe the soothe response that comes from that and all these different things and so you take that first part you do the box breathing then you take the second part, which is, what is my brain telling me? How is my brain reinforcing? What is the story that is reinforcing my body to keep dumping adrenaline, to keep dumping cortisol, to keep dumping neuroepinephrine, to keep doing this stuff that says, I'm in physical danger, I have to fight, or I have to run, or I have to freeze, or I have to do these things. Mm. And so then when you recognize what that story is, you have to be totally honest and write it down. But the, it's the hardest thing to do because the fear is if anybody ever reads this, the people with the white coats are going to come and make me hug myself and stick me in a room, right? The yeah. padded room is waiting for me because if anybody ever saw what's really going on up here, oh no, I'm freaking out now, right? Yeah. But you have to do that. And then you go do a quick bit of exercise because you have to redistribute where your blood and where the adrenaline is going. Because if you don't exercise and get it going to your limbs, it stays in your gut. It yeah. stays in your heart, stays in your lungs. Most importantly, it stays in your brain. Yeah. And adrenaline in your brain speeds up the way your brain fires, which then makes time go slower. Yeah. So when you're in a panic state, that's why you feel like, oh man, I feel like I've, I must have been freaking out for like 15 minutes. And then you look at your watch and you're like, it's been a minute and a half. How, how could it feel like 15 minutes? That doesn't make any sense. But what it does is what they found is adrenaline speeds up your brain by about a factor of 10 because it's designed for physical threats yeah. to where time slows down enough that then you can duck maybe fast enough if a tiger is going to jump and eat you, yeah. right? That kind of thing. Yeah. Like the Matrix style where you're dodging bullets and things. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then, then, you know, the fourth thing you do is you go back and you read the stuff you wrote and you ask yourself the question, do I still believe this? On a scale of one to 10, do I still believe this? And if it's five or above, do it again. Mm, yeah. Breathe some more. Yeah. I mean, it's because one of the things that I'm um, really, I, I'm enjoying at the moment is uh, as a sort of physiological response. So in your 
your bracket of exercise is mm-hmm. um is shaking it's like mm-hmm. standing and just shaking your body just like yeah. shaking mm-hmm. it off. yeah and, and it out. take a power walk do a quick yeah. bit of push-ups do like a sit-up do whatever you need to do to get it out of you get it moving yeah yeah, yeah. you know i mean i think um you know, if you if you if your squirrel gets frightened and it, it you know it's been literally it is being chased, so it has every right to yeah. have its sympathetic nervous yeah. system activated. It'll yeah. it'll tear up a tree to safety, and then yeah. it shakes itself. It shake literally just shakes mm-hmm. itself and gets on with yeah. its day. We don't have that automatic physical response. Yeah. We have shake to it off, right? Literally, literally shake, shake it, off. it off. We yeah. have to. We have to manage that. We mm-hmm. have to actually do something mentally to make ourselves shake it off. And mm-hmm. so actually physically moving your body, just shaking it off, just literally to blah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and suddenly it your makes body, you feel so much better, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, stamping the feet or punching or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is, just holding yourself, you know, giving yourself a mm-hmm. hug. There's so many ways that we can physically comfort ourselves mm-hmm. where, where we kind of bypass the hormone, you know, the whole adrenaline mm-hmm. kind system, bypass our brains and just go into our bodies and deal with it somatically, mm-hmm. which yeah. I which I love. You know, I mean, obviously my thing is yoga. And so I, you know, deal with a lot mm-hmm. of it, all energy and stuff through yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that's quite sort of formalized. And so sometimes. Yeah when you're when you're in this kind of you know five minute right I'm just going to do my do my box breath I'm going to write mm-hmm. down what I'm talking about I'm going to exercise mm-hmm. and exercise for a lot of people is like oh god I've got to put on my gym kit and I've got to go for yeah. a run yeah. actually you can just stand in you know stand yeah. on it's stand and shake it off it's stand it and off. take a quick it's standing and shaking it off it's standing and and then basically taking a quick power walk where you're just kind of moving your arms and legs and huffing and puffing really quick it's yeah. Doing really quick where you just drop down and go like literally like three push-ups. It's like something just to get the blood changing where it's flowing. It doesn't take, it doesn't, I usually, that's why I put in there, do this for a minute or two. It doesn't need to be for 15, 20, 30 minutes. This is a, literally yeah. a five to seven minute exercise yeah. to get this through, to process this through so that you don't keep staying stuck because that is the thing that causes the trauma to stick yeah. in your brain. Because the way our physical body does stuff is I love I love our physical body and it but it makes me laugh so much because this is how the physical body reacts. I got an email from my boss. My boss says, I need to talk to you. My initial thought is great. That means I'm gonna be fired. And so my body goes into fight or flight, and then my body tells me, Well, you know what that means, right? It means you're gonna lose your house, you're gonna lose all your money, you're gonna lose your family, you're gonna lose your friends, you're gonna be dead under a bridge in a week. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That escalated really, really quick. But if That's you look what at we do to ourselves. We do yeah, it. If you look at humanity, our greatest fear is being exiled from the tribe, whatever that tribe is. Because yeah. historically speaking, and even in parts of the world today, being exiled, being in exile from the tribe equals death. And that is hardwired into us. So whenever we feel like we're about to be exiled, that's why for most kids, high school is hell because it's their 400% increase in their hormones and the way they're dealing with everything. So everything is super heightened. So when anything bad happens, they're deep in the, I am being exiled from the tribe and that's how they react. Like 
when your best friend no longer wants to talk to you, you literally feel like you are now kicked out in the cold and you're going to die because that is what your body tells you. But that's why doing these exercises and recognizing that that thought process is an ancient relic that is still stuck in us today. Because what people forget is, I I love to do this little timeline for people because it makes them just go, you're kidding me, right? So I'll use America as an example because it's what I know best that I live here. So basically it's 185,000 years. Cavemen, tribes, 25 to 100 people, all that stuff up until about 5,000 years when recorded history started, right? Whole lot of stuff. Before that, it was all oral, all narrative, all story. Then that started. But then the first 4,000 years of history is bloody, horrible, bubonic plagues, all the different things, right? And then you go into the next 1,000 years when things start to get a little bit better, medical care starts to get a little bit better, but real good medical care didn't start until about 200 plus years ago, right? And then you shrink that down to, okay, then 200 plus years ago, decent medical care started. But then about 120 years ago, then it was the Industrial Revolution. Now we have machines that can do more things for us, about 120 years ago. So we're now out of the Wild West in America into the Industrial Revolution. We now go into the Computer Revolution, which is 70 years later. We now go into the Internet Age, which is about 27 years ago. We now go into smartphones, which was about 17, 15, 17 years ago. We now go into apps, which was about 10 years ago, and now we're in the age of AI. So you think about that timeline. Literally, we are at the point in our lives where we are the most safe we've ever been. Mm. We're the most connected, but we're also the most disconnected because now we're living in massive urban environments where we actually don't know our neighbors, Mm. where to talk to our family and friends, we either use a phone, we do email, we do text, we do those kind of things. If we're lucky, we're close enough that we get to see them. But if anyone's ever been here in America, you know how gigantic America is when it comes to wide open spaces. Yeah. So when you're so when your family separates to the four winds and the four corners of America, it literally could be a 12-hour plane ride to get to anybody at any time or a three or four day car drive to get to anywhere, any place, right? So when you look at these things and this massive thing, our bodies are still, in the biological sense, we are still about 180,000 years stuck in the past with the way our biology interacts with today's modern world. Everything out there is still trying to kill us. There's always monsters around the corner. And so our body reacts the same way because the amazing thing about this and the hard thing about this is Our brain doesn't know the difference between the tiger that is in our head and the real tiger that's sitting in front of me trying to eat me. In your body and brain, it's the exact same thing. One protocol, fear response, go. Yeah, and it is is extraordinary that our, uh, our world has speeded up beyond our physical capability. And and in a way, you know, it's a thing that keeps us feeling it's the way that keeps us yeah. grounded and and mm-hmm. searching for answers and methods yeah. ways and and i think searching for connection as well you know i mean yeah. we we all you know a, a fundamental need of the human you know at the root chakra mm-hmm. is tribe yeah. is family is yeah. belonging exactly as you were mm-hmm. saying 
And so even though we're in this very disparate, weird, you mm -hmm. know, sort of, um, sort super of disconnected yet super connected simultaneous world where the things we use to connect are designed using science and bio biological psychology and cognitive psychology to make us ping the parts of our brain that make us feel super connected and interactive, yeah. but yet it's still hollow because it's not the actual physical you're in my presence. This is great. Don't get me wrong. I love this stuff. I love the fact that I'm able to connect with people like this. But the problem with it is, is that when you get too deep into it, mm. your brain doesn't start to know the difference then. And then when it gets real authentic connection, it's almost overwhelmed with the difference of real authentic in-person connection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the clearest example of that, I'm sorry to drag the tone down, but is yeah. Paul. I think yeah. Paul, that's, that's uh, for me, that's absolutely terrifying that our, our youth and our, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's always been around, but, you know, back when we were young, it was just like, you know, yeah. you've a smutty magazine yeah. in a hedge. Yeah. Thing, mm -hmm. Now it's like everything is so hyper mm -hmm. crazy mm -hmm. and not realistic. So that when real, real, human connection happens i, I like, this isn't this isn't the way it's supposed to be yeah i mean this is a whole big subject that we could yeah. get deep deep into oh, and if you want to i'm happy to do a whole thing on that i have lots of stuff we could talk about about that really <laughs> i mean i think it is such an i think it is such an epidemic and i think it is such an important subject actually um i think especially for parents as well mm -hmm. who have kids they're like even up to you know my kids are 23 and 25 so you know, even that kind of um, age, you know, it's still such a fundamental part of, mm -hmm. of our happiness because our happiness mm -hmm. depends on human connection, on actual mm -hmm. real connection. And yep. if we're expecting it to be like that and it is like that and, uh, you know, expectation. Yeah, then, there's, then there's that cognitive dissidence that happens inside the brain, which then makes you question your reality, the what reality is supposed to be. And then you become super disillusioned by the way the world is versus the way it's being presented to you, right? Yeah. It's, you know, people forget that they are porn actors. It's just like going to the movies. They're yeah. playing a part. You know, Hugh Jackman, although he plays Wolverine really well, he is not Wolverine. <laughs> if you were to shoot him, he would die. Yeah. Right? He wouldn't heal instantly. And it's when you do that kind of stark contrast, it's like, oh, I never thought about that. It's like, yeah. you have to remember, they probably spent a whole day shooting 75 different scenes and then cut it cut it down to like an hour mm -hmm. or a clip here or a clip there or whatever they do. So they had tons of time to perfect all the things. Human beings, we don't have that in the real world. Yes, exactly. And if yeah. you do, good for you, but no. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Well, listen, let's move on to the other subject that I really wanted to talk to you about. So it's a little bit of a right angle turn here, um, yeah. but probably not really because, um, you know, talking about how we relate to each other. Um, yes. I think one thing that we we is it seems to have become quite a popular label mm -hmm. is people pleasing. And yes. You know, I mean, I've labeled myself as a people pleaser in the past. You know, you just do anything to make people happy. You know, you, yeah. you, you. so talk to me about your um, you say that you can break 
I love that you yes. break people pleasing. So yes. what what's your take on on this this little nugget? So for me, people pleasing started in elementary school because I was bullied through elementary, middle, and high school, and so that really developed people pleasing, anxiety, depression, and basically being feeling like I have to be a chameleon with everybody. And so what I found with being people pleaser is being a people pleaser. I had to own it because it also is my superpower because it taught me how to read people because being a people pleaser is again is also not what people think being a people pleaser is my job as a people pleaser is to try to anticipate exactly what you want from me before you know that you want it from me it's a protective behavior yes it's a protective behavior it's a super coping mechanism so you're hyper aware of watching people's nonverbal body language, what they're about to say, how they say things, the way things are in such a way that you're so hyper-focused on other people around you that you sublimate yourself into this, like I'm now a doormat. You know, it's, you're, you're now the doormat. People can just walk over me. It's no problem because my job is to be the person that you need me to be, even though you don't know that you need me to be that person. Yeah. Right. But what's coming up for me when you say that is that, uh, yes, you're you're so hyper vigilant on what everybody else, you know, the people who you're kind of in fear of almost mm-hmm. are doing around you, that all your attention is out, out, out all the time. And you forget yeah. who you are. It's not mm-hmm. a matter of just just. Yes, you have. But you've lost all your awareness mm-hmm. of yourself because all yeah. your energy and time and yeah. senses have to be laser focused on yeah. seeing these yeah, so that's what you... And the uh, thing about the people-pleasing is it leads, it? it leads directly to burnout, too. All the That's the thing I'm finding is everything kind of leads back to this burnout thing, the four phases of burnout. Yeah. Because as a people-pleaser, the first thing you do is you start to disconnect from the people that know you best because they'll call you on it. Yes. They'll say, what are you doing? Knock it off. I don't need that version of you. I need to use you. Yeah. Like, what do you mean you need me i don't I, who, who is that right so you start to disconnect from that which yeah. begins the process you know and then that starts to make you feel sad and guilty and depressed and oh, i shouldn't be disconnecting from these people because what if they still need me and all these different things so then that creates this depression piece right which then leads you to the second phase is where now you don't now you don't start to shower as much now you don't start to do your makeup as much now you don't start to shave as much now you don't start to do these things as much because i don't deserve it because i'm not pleasing the people around me. yeah and so then so then that starts to eat then into your other relationships you now start to disconnect from your other relationships and you start to look for new relationships because they don't know me yet yeah so i can be whatever they need me to be <laughs> and from there that then starts to impact everything else because now you've taken this support system that you had that you built up over the years mm. and just gone yeah because i don't want anyone telling me that i don't know what other people need yeah which is ridiculous because you do not know what other people need (laughs) and here's the thing the reason why i was a world-class people pleaser is because i became a therapist so now i learned all the cognitive tools all the things where (laughs) my job now is to get you to come in sit down and tell me the worst, absolute horrible day of your life 
within the first 20 minutes of meeting. So you can fix so I learned all the skills to make that just now. I can finally do the thing that I've been training my whole life to do. But yet, what I found is, once I began meditating, once I began looking inward, once I began asking myself those questions, who do I want to be as a human being, as a husband, as a father, as a man, as a brother, as a son, as all these other labels, who do I want to be? That was how I began to break out of it. Because what I found was, me being me is actually the most effective way to get other people to feel better because I am the authentic connection they're looking for. Because the me everybody's hearing, the me that you and I are having this conversation, this is how I am with my kids. It's how I am with my clients. It's how I am with my friends. I'm just me now. But first I had to figure out the fundamental question, who is that? Yeah. I mean, and so what I found is I am a loud mouth, sarcastic, American, cisgendered, white male who really just wants to help people feel better about themselves in any way possible because when people kept asking me why do you do what you do why do you do this it's because i know what pain is i have been through all the different kinds or as many as i've been able to go through i have helped thousands of people through their pain i've had probably three to four thousand conversations with three to four thousand different people over the 23-year career that I've been doing this. And what I found is, this is who I am. Mm. I want other people to not, if I can shave off one day of pain for you, then, then I did good. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's who I am. And so you have to own who you are and what you are to the point where now you don't care what other people think. Mm. Because it comes back to a it's very a simple bit. fact. The moment you step outside, the moment you open your eyes, the moment you leave your house, any person that sees you instantly has an opinion about you. Could be right, could be wrong. Most of the time, it doesn't matter because you're probably not even going to talk to them. The only people's opinions that matter is your opinion as long as you're not using it to hurt other people. You need to just know who you are. And the way to do that is you have to do the meditation, you have to do the journaling, you have to do these simple things that you do every day to create this consistent change and this deep knowledge of this is me. My job is not to make you like me. You either do or you don't. And I think and that was the really hardest thing for me to learn. I think another really important way of approaching this is you if you if you're a people pleaser and you kind of want people to like you and and mm -hmm. so you meld yourself into whatever shape you feel mm -hmm. they, they need you to be um you think you oh, something that i ask you know i it's, it seems to be a wonderful thing that comes with age where you suddenly realize actually i don't like everybody i mean there are some people who i love fiercely <laughs> some people yeah. who i like some people who i tolerate and some people who i really don't yeah. I don't care for them, whatever. So if exactly. I don't like everybody, why is everyone going to like me? You know, who exactly. cares? Who cares? Exactly. Doesn't, and letting go of that is 
oh my god it's so liberating it's a fantastic it is right because now you recognize wait a minute if i don't like everybody then every and everybody doesn't have to like me and if what people are searching for is authenticity the more that i mean then the more people will like me because i'm authentically myself and i'm consistent in every situation with them so they now know exactly what to expect from me which then instinctively makes them like me more so the very thing that i've been afraid to be is the very thing that will get me everything i want whoa (laughs) (laughs) it's such a beauty that was the thing that made my brain go but it's a magical, magical realization. You know, that's why I, I have like literally zero tolerance for small talk. I just can't. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I yeah. just run. <laughs> you think you have zero tolerance for small talk? I've yeah. been a therapist for 23 years. I don't know what small talk is. is My yeah. first question to most people is, so tell me about your parents. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about that? And then they go, what? you're a therapist. And then you've got them in the corner sobbing yeah, on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, here's what we're going to do. And here's how we can fix it. Like, I only came here because I was trying to have a good time. And now you've ripped open all my wounds. It's like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I can't help it. I can't turn it off. <laughs> oh, I know. But that authentic connection, that authentic human connection is so... It's so raw and and beautiful and what life is about and not being your magic, you know, your your majestic Magical is, is a crime to my my favorite quote is this is something I often tell my kids. I'm like, just remember, guys, you're gonna go to school today. And remember, you're gonna be different just like everybody else. Yeah. That's pretty you're special, just like everybody else. You're unique, just like everybody else. You know, and it's that kind of thing that we forget that, that each one of us is the star of our own show. And we are writing the script as we move through life. And we are choosing the role that we, that we inhabit. Yeah. And the way that we, because it always comes back to this very simple equation, because this is the engineering father in me, is this is what I found out about feelings. Feelings are the way you are in the world is your thoughts plus your feelings, equals the way you act or react in a situation. Mm. And the problem is, to balance the equation, there's always another person that that action creates a thought and a feeling in them, which then creates a reaction, which then creates the cycle you find yourself stuck in. So as long as you can know what you're thinking and what you're feeling in any given moment, you can rewrite your story at any time you want to. You can stop and take a breath and figure out what's going on inside of you. Why do I feel like I have to change for this person? What is it about this person that makes me feel like I can't be me? Why? And most of the time you find out that it's just the story that you're telling yourself yeah. about that. Yeah. And the- really, here's the thing though. We often don't tell the people what the story is that they're playing a part in. We don't tell them where they're supposed to stand, what they're supposed to say, how they're supposed to do it. The director in our brain writes this elaborate script of the way it's supposed to go. And when it doesn't go that way, ooh, not good. Not good. So, so true. <laughs> such, such a lot of 
there's some really good take homes in our conversation. I'm so grateful to you, Clint. Thank you. Listen, tell I'm people so glad to be here. where where can people get hold of you? What's your website and all of that good sure. stuff? Uh, so you can find me at smallchangesbigimpact.net uh, uh, backslash info. On that one, there is a free ebook. There is a training on burnout. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at smallchangesbigimpact, about the number four and the letter U. And I post two minute videos just about the random stuff that comes through my brain. And if you listen to this podcast, you can tell I've got a lot of random stuff that comes through my brain. <laughs> yeah, but it's valuable stuff. It's valuable stuff, Clint. It's been really, really interesting talking to you. And I'm um I'm really pleased to have to have done so because I feel like I know more about EMDR. Uh, I think breaking down people pleasing is always a winner. I think like we all need yeah. to listen to that like listen to that on a daily basis before we go out into the world just to remind just to reinforce us uh, that idea that we just got to go out and be be us because we're be us. and the best thing is is to remind yourself that you don't have to do 30 minutes to get benefit from meditation yeah, you true. don't have to do an hour of journaling to get benefit if you start by just doing three five minute sessions of three minutes of meditation and two minutes of journaling to just get that out and see what the story is. So you can decide, is this the story I want to live? Because that's what the story is. All we are is biological entities that are programmed by story. So if we can recognize the story, we can change our coding. And if we can change our coding, we can change our life. And that's all I have to say about that. That's all we have to say about that, right? Well, I'll say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Clint. It has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.